0: Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. And today we're going to be in the book of Exodus chapter three. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, Exodus is the second book in the Bible. Starting on the left, you work your way through kind of a longer Genesis and get to Exodus. and We're going to be in the third chapter of Exodus. If you do not have a copy of the scriptures, do not panic. We'll have those words on the screen for you. And we would love to give you a Bible in a readable English translation on your way out. So, we are talking about the stories of the people in the Bible. If you go to read the Bible, there's a lot in there, and there's a lot of different sort of genres. Some of them are more approachable. Some of them seem a little more difficult to get something out of. But one thing that always feels a little easier are the stories, because the stories of a person's life, you can kind of Understand, you you have a life, you know lots of people, you've read other stories about lives, and, and so you get these stories, and these stories are long, and they're stories about people that are enduring and experiencing wild circumstances. And God interacts with these people, and usually the way God interacts with them is unique. There's a reason that their story is being told, and yet it's also accessible. There's something about it that is for us. That's also why it's being told. The last two weeks, we started with a guy named Abraham, which in the book of Genesis, he is a big deal. In the Bible, he's a big deal. He's an important person because of how God interacts with him. But as we talked about over the last couple of weeks, he's not actually all that different from us. Yeah, I mean, he's from the Middle East, and yeah, it was several thousand years ago, but <laughs> he's also a person. He's a person who is a sinner before a holy God. He was a person who was interacted with by that holy God because of the grace of God, not because of the exceptionalism of Abraham. And the grace of God to Abraham was that he was going to make Abraham from a man into a nation, that the the children from Abraham would be great in number, so great that you wouldn't be able to count them. And then he was going to establish that people into a land that he would give. And yet at the end of Abraham's life, he only had a little grave plot in that land and one son. It's not really that far along in his uh, receiving of that promise. And that's actually where we get the example of Abraham. The example of Abraham wasn't great blessing. The example of Abraham wasn't even really great righteousness. The example of Abraham was faith that he trusted God, and God counted that faith as righteousness. Well, you keep going through Scripture and you get to another guy, this guy Moses. And of all the people that are discussed in the Old Testament, Abraham may be the top of that list. Moses is right there if he's not above him. Moses was a very important person in the Scripture because of how God used him. But the way God used him isn't something I think we all grasp. And it's certainly not something that we all want on the surface. But I want to try and incentivize us. I want to say something about Moses that you may want that will help us to say, all right, let me get over some of the distinctions. Let me get over some of the difficulties in understanding this guy's world because I want what he had. I want something of the effectiveness that he had. And it was an effectiveness that ended in this way. It says in Deuteronomy 34, 7, that Moses, when he died, was 120 years old. So he made it pretty far. And at 120, his eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. How are you doing? How's your vigor doing? My vigor is baited, man. I'm tired I'm not doing great. <laughs> My eyes are not open all the way. They're, they're dimmed. They're not all the way dimmed, but, you know, a percentage dimmed today. And I'm 37. This guy was 120 years old. And at that death, his eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. How? Was, this was a guy who was electric. This was a guy who was effective. This was a guy through whom God did huge things. And we'll talk next week, we're only going to do two weeks on Moses, which is crazy, but we've got to keep moving. But we'll talk next week about some of the things God did through Moses in delivering the people of Israel. But today, I just want to kind of talk about Moses. And the reason that I want us to, to enter in is because this quality of high level of life that Moses had is matched by another quality that is less um, attractive, but I think actually connected. Like if you want the one, the other is a big part of it. While Moses was known for his activity and his longevity, he was also known for his humility. It says in Numbers 12, now the man Moses was very meek, more meek than all the people who were on the face of the earth. You may want to be productive. You may want to have a life that is long and full. Do you want to be meek? Do you want to be humble? Guys, do you want to be meek? Do you want people to say, oh, yeah, there's Tim. Man, he's (laughs) meek. You know, like, is that how you want to be known? It's not something culturally that we value very highly. Like, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that Jesus in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount actually says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So there's something there But in general, you don't posture your life saying, all right, New Year's resolutions. How are we going to get some meekness in here? How are we going to add that to the palate? I don't know. It's not something that we often choose to be a servant-hearted person, to be a low person, to be a person who thinks of themselves very little. But that's what Moses was. And I think it's connected to how God used Moses. Because if you can see yourself as you really are, then you have room to see God as he really is. And it's usually the other way around. As you start to see God as he is, you start to see yourself as you are. And the big headline with Moses, the thing that we should want, because life and productivity, that sounds like something that we already want, but I'll tell you what I think you, you should want that Moses had, was Moses had access to God. Moses had a unique, until the New Testament, access to God. And I, I think that's actually at the center of both of these ideas. I want you to pursue meekness because I want you to actually see God. And I want to do that real quick by talking about Moses' life. So let's talk about this guy. Let's give ourselves a little bit of an Old Testament story before we talk about how he was able to see uh, see the Lord. It says about Moses. So Abraham, we talked about. Abraham has kids. He had the promise that he would have kids, and he had the kid of promise, Isaac. And Isaac had a kid of promise, Jacob, and Jacob had twelve. Sons, and those twelve sons ended up becoming the twelve tribes of the people of Israel. And you go, Israel, I thought his name was Jacob. Yeah, God actually changes his name at one point in his life from Jacob to Israel. And that new name, Israel, becomes this group, this collection, a family, that then becomes lots and lots and lots of families as they have kids who 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 have kids. And one of those kids of uh, Jacob, of his 12, was a guy named Joseph. And God used some of the suffering and oppression in Joseph's life to bring him to the neighboring world power of Egypt. And in Egypt, Joseph, through a wild set of stories, go read the back half of uh, Genesis, becomes the prime minister over all of Egypt. And in that position, he's given, through prophecy, this ...vision of what is coming, and he's able to store up food to prepare for a famine for all the Middle East. And Jacob and his other sons, the other 11, are able to come and live with Joseph in Egypt... They're taken into the fattest part of the land. They get to live in the nicest part of Egypt, and there they multiply. So you fast forward generation after generation, and this group, this family, becomes becomes a really, really large family in but not of Egypt. They still are very distinct culturally and ethnically, I guess, from the Egyptians. They become a nation within a nation. That makes the Egyptians scared as they multiply to a point where the Egyptians actually make them into a slave class within Egypt. That slave class then continues to multiply to a point where even as slaves, the pharaohs get concerned, and one pharaoh just makes this decree that the people of Israel had to kill all of their boys. So whenever they have a baby, if it's a girl, great, but if it's a boy, you've got to kill him. And he instructs the midwives to do this. They don't do it, so then he instructs all the people to just cast their baby boys into the Nile River. Well, then you, you go from big numbers down to this one story of this one family where Moses is born to this lady, and her, her parents are impressed. They love him. They don't want him to die. So they, they do what they're supposed to do by putting him in the Nile, but instead of throwing him to crocodiles, they, they make this nice basket for him, and they float him down. And he floats into the presence of Pharaoh's daughter who was bathing in the Nile. And she sees this little Israelite baby. I mean, she knows why there's a baby in the Nile. But instead of sending him on further down the river to die, she adopts him. She brings him into Pharaoh's house. And he becomes great in Pharaoh's house. In the New Testament, there's a guy named Stephen who gives kind of a retrospective of the Old Testament. And he says about Moses, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and in his deeds. Moses goes from a baby in Egypt. I'm fast-forwarding. That's what I'm miming. not a very good mime. <laughs> this stuff happens in my head, and then I realize that's a weird thing for somebody to see without any idea. You fast-forward, and then you go from Moses in the Nile to age 40 Moses. And age 40 Moses is Moses who's been grown up. He's been raised within the house of Pharaoh. And he's mighty, as you would expect. He's had great food, great training, great opportunities his whole life. He's, he's stepping out at age 40 as an impressive dude. And yet, he chooses in that moment to be a deliverer of his people, the Israelites. He's got every opportunity to just decide that he's now Egyptian or effectively Egyptian. But instead, he identifies with the slaves, the Israelites, by by doing uh, what I'm about to describe. So in, in Hebrews 11, which is a great chapter that talks about a lot of these people, it says by faith Moses when he was born was hidden for 3 months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses when he had grown up refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He was con- he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward at age 40, he goes out and he sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite, and he beats the Egyptian so much that that guy died. So he's now a murderer of an Egyptian. He's clearly put his life with the Israelites, and he hides the body in the sand. He comes back the next day, and there's two Israelites fighting, and he goes, "'Brothers, brothers, why are you fighting?' And they go, What are you going to do? You going to kill us like you did that Egyptian yesterday? Woo! Moses gets scared. His crime is known, and he flees. He just leaves. He knows that it's going to be known, and it is. The Pharaoh knows that, that Moses has chosen to be an Israelite and not an Egyptian, despite all the hospitality he's shown. Moses flees out into the desert, and he gets kind of adopted into this family in a place called Media or, or the Midian. This guy, uh, Jethro, had seven daughters and they're out. They're shepherdesses together as sisters trying to take care of these sheep. And Moses jumps in. He helps them out and they bring him home. And the father ends up marrying Moses off to one of his daughters. Now you have to fast forward another 40 years. I want you to see the poles within this guy's life. He spent 40 years in the nicest house anywhere. (laughs) In the White House. He spent 40 years being grown up in the White House. And now he's spending 40 years as just a shepherd in the middle of nowhere with no opportunity. He's no longer Egyptian and he's no longer Israelite either. He's just out there. And in that 40 years, there's certainly a continued humbling that takes place. So much so that when we get to Exodus 3, you have Moses encountering God. He walked and he saw this bush that was on fire but not consumed. I mean, there's probably wildfires taking place. It's not such a crazy thing to see something on fire, but it's real crazy to see something that looks like it would if it wasn't on fire and yet to be wreathed in flames. So he walks up to it, and as he gets close, a voice cries out to him that he's walking into holy a holy area, onto holy ground. And he interacts now with the God of the Israelites. It says in verse 9 of chapter 3 of Exodus, And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This is it. Moses' name means to be drawn out, and his life was drawn out of the Nile as Pharaoh's daughter brings him into her house. He knew that he was going to be a a possible guy to help try and make Israelites' life better by by defeating this Egyptian and and hiding him away and trying to make it better for these slaves. So he he wants to be somebody who's helping the Israelites. And now you go 40 years later, he's 80 years old, and God says to this 80-year-old dude, you're going to be the one to draw my people Israel out of Egypt. And how does Moses respond? Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Moses responds with humility and confusion. He's begun to understand that, of course, a person isn't able to do something like this. Only a God could do something like this. He has a severe limitation on who he is and understands that he has to have a very high opinion of God, said, like, I, I, I can't do this. You go down to verse 12. But God said, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that, you have, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, they're going to ask me, what is his name? What do I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, "Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you." So what happens? God says about himself that he is going to go with Moses, that he's going to be the one to draw them out of Egypt, and he's going to be the one to do it as their personal God. God is the God of all things, but here he's describing himself as their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now the God of Moses and the God of Israel. And how does he do that? How does he cement that? He uses his personal name. He gives them his name. And names at this time... They weren't just the name of the person. They weren't just picked because mom and dad looked through a baby book. They were picked because they had a meaning that connected with that person, which is why as the person grew up and things changed in life, sometimes their names would change. Jacob becomes Israel. Abram becomes Abraham. But God is now giving his name. It is a personal name, so it's an invitation into a relationship, but it is also a specific descriptor. What does it mean? Well, well, I am that I am is the word Yahweh in the original language. You may have heard God talked about as Yahweh before. And, and when you read through the Old Testament in most English Bibles, that word Yahweh actually comes up quite a bit, but the way that they do it in the English is they'll translate it as Lord, but they'll translate it as Lord where all the letters are capitalized. A lot of times the capital L will be a little bit bigger, and then you'll have O-R-D that are all in capitals. It looks a little weird when you see it. But whenever you see it, they're trying to translate the name Lord, Yahweh, I am that I am. When they do that, and they do that often, they're describing God's personal name as the name that he uses for himself and his prophets use of him most. A guy named John Piper compiles the stats. He says, it occurs 6,828 times in the Old Testament. That's more than three times as often as the simpler word for God, Elohim or El. What this fact shows is that God aims to be known, not as a generic deity, but as a specific person with a name that carries his unique character and mission. As he says in verse 15, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Okay, cool. So this is a place where we want to invest. Lots of things happening in these stories and you can know them for Bible trivia, but like you really, the whole point of this is to see God, to know God. And if he's given us his name, then that name is something we want to really spend some time on. It's not Bible trivia. It's now game time. It's now what we're here for. It's the meat. It's God describing himself and that's what we want. Moses we'll just got to see God, and, and we'll talk more about that next week. But certainly, this experience with the bush, this experience as the one who receives the name of God, is crucial. Okay, well, what do you do with I am that I am? Does that mean a lot to you? Does it jump out in sparkling meaning? I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe not. For me, it was really helpful. I read the sermon by this guy, John Piper, and, and he listed out seven different things we can take from that name. And I, I want to do that. And you're like, seven? Oh, my God. Okay, we'll go fast. But I think it's helpful. One, I am that I am as a name means that God really does exist. And you go, okay. <laughs> does that matter? Yeah, it matters a lot. Listen, a lot of different people show up to Hope Church. There are people that are like old hands, dyed-in-the-wool, committed Christians. There are people that are kind of new and figuring out Christians. And then there are people who are not Christians and are just trying to figure out. You know, they're nice enough to keep coming. Maybe there's, you know, cultural reasons, or maybe there's like relational reasons that they're here, but at the end of the day, they're still investigating. Great. All these people have a lot in common. They have the brokenness thing in common, like David said, but we also have a a reason to maybe not get super excited that God says that he exists. I can think of two. One reason that we might be motivated to either disbelieve or just kind of forget or minimize in our head that God exists is that if God exists, then really he's in control. You know, if God exists, then he's really the one who gets to say what happens. And that's hard for us. I really want something that I can call mine. And I think we, we all value that together. I mean, you can see it in our, our kind of entertainment, art, literature, expression. I don't know if you ever read Matilda, the Roald doll book. It's about a girl with superpowers. Pretty sweet, if you ever want to read it. But in that book... There's a bad guy principal, and there's a good guy teacher, and her name is Miss Honey. And Matilda, the little heroine, goes home, uh, female hero, not drug, goes home with Miss Honey and finds that Miss Honey lives in this crazy small little shack. It's extremely small and extremely poor. And she tries to host Matilda, and Matilda just starts asking questions and realizes exactly how poor Miss Honey is. But Miss Honey says with pride, I know it's not much, but it's mine. And she's renting, she doesn't own it, but it's a place that she's renting. And in that moment, you feel for Miss Honey this great affection. You already felt it because she's pretty and because she's really kind and good-hearted and a victim, but in that moment, you feel it even more. Think about Aladdin. Aladdin takes Jasmine. Jasmine right in the beginning of the movie when she's still like pretending that she's like a street urchin, but she's actually the princess. And she's with Aladdin and he takes her up to his little loft, but is really just sort of a, you know, broken attic on the top of a building or whatever. And she walks in and, she, and he's saying, yeah, no, it's not much, but we go where we want, we come and we go. And it's got a great view. And then he pulls back the rag and they see the palace, and Aladdin's heart is taken because he can't wait to somehow, someday have power like that. And the princess is sad because she doesn't want to go back home. Do you remember the scene? You don't have to. I just gave you all the information of that scene. <laughs> well, what's, what's so compelling in that moment? There's a lot of things happening. It's high art. But when Aladdin walks in there, you feel for him. You are growing your affection of him because he says, we go where we want. And he looks on the palace and says, I want that. And we go, yeah, he wants control. You feel the same thing for Jasmine, who's like a prisoner in the castle, and she would do anything to get out because she wants, yeah, control. We get that. But if God's God, we're not in control. A second thing, if God's God, we don't get credit. I want credit for what I do. I I, I want it like in a weird way. I want it to the degree that we talk about taking the tour. Like whenever Rachel comes home, if I've done something, I'm like, oh, did you see I did the dishes? You got to take the tour. Let me show you. Let's walk together. (laughs) Did it. And then you got to wait for her to go, great job. Thank you for doing the bare minimum of adulthood. You know, whatever her kind (laughs) response is. But like, I want credit. You want credit. We want credit. But it's hard if somebody else is involved for us to take less credit. If God's God, then we have to say with the writer of Corinthians, what do you have that you have not received? It's a little harder for you to take credit, right? Have you ever heard of the phrase a nepo baby? A nepo baby is a baby, a person who benefits from the position of their family, nepotism. There's a lady named Allison Williams who's an actress. And she's had a leg up because her dad was the news anchor, Brian Williams. So she, before his kind of fall from grace, she was able to know people within the sort of NBC Universal world because her dad could just say, like, yeah, here's Tina Fey's number. Give her an email. See if you can be her assistant. She says about herself, that makes me a, a Nepo baby. I know that about me. And, and while that doesn't take away from the work, it does make me harder to cheer for <laughs> Because this is not like an even field, and and this isn't a fair business. I I still think that means that I can be an actress, but I understand why that makes me harder to cheer for. And when she can say that in a very, like, articulate way, there's a part of you that goes, well, yeah, thank you for being humble about that. She's giving up some of the credit for what she's earned. It's hard to do. It requires humility. I don't think we want God to exist because there's a part of us that wants that credit. God, when He says, I am that I am, doesn't just mean that He exists. He also means that He is the reality that is the essential reality. There there is no reality that exists behind God. When God says, I am that I am, He is saying that He is without beginning. Nobody gets to take credit for Him there is no God that generated God. If you go into Greek mythology, you have Zeus and you think, okay, that's the leader of the gods. But Zeus isn't self-existent. He came from. And the Titans come from. And all of it goes back to this chaos person. And the chaos comes from, like there's a, re, like a regression of the gods. And of course, that's the only way we know to think about things. You came from a person who came from a person who came from a person ad nauseum. When God says, I am that I am, he says, nope, I am. I, I didn't exist because of something else. I exist. That fact of being a prime ra- reality is something philosophers take a lot and make a lot of hay out of. If you're not into philosophy, I get that, but C.S. Lewis, um, British writer from the last century, got to write a lot of like accessible work. He did a thing called Surprise by Joy. That's his personal spiritual autobiography. How did he come to become a Christian? And he makes a lot out of this because he comes to Christianity not first by becoming a Christian, but by first becoming just a, a sort of an absolutist, the idea that there is this universal and then a theist and then. But he makes a lot of hay out of it. He helps you understand why that might be interesting if you're into philosophy and you decide to read it, let me know. God does not, also does not change. I am that I am means that God is in this perfection that if it were to change would bring about some diminution. He would, he would become less than. If you're already at the top, then to change is to somehow become less. It says in James in the New Testament, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Well, of course not. You say, no, 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 if you're the best, you've got to keep innovating to stay the best. No, no, no. That's the best compared to competitors. The best, when you really mean the best, is to say the best. Like, best possible. If you're perfect, you can't get more perfect. That's what perfect means. And God being perfect doesn't change. I am that I am. For I am that I am. God is an inexhaustible source of energy. He doesn't pull energy from anything else because He doesn't need to. He, he is and being is the fount of being for everything else. Our being, being dependent, looks at his being as independent. In Isaiah 40 it says, Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, and I am that I am God. He's the creator then of the ends of the earth. and He doesn't faint. He doesn't grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Not us. You're going to have to sleep tonight. And if you don't, you're definitely going to sleep the next night. And if you still don't, you're going to go crazy or die. you got to sleep. And if you don't sleep or if you do sleep, you're still eventually going to die. (laughs) Like the clock runs out. You and I are dependent. We require a lot of rest. God doesn't. And I think this is part of what we talked about with Moses' just unending energy that goes to 120. There's something about God that is sustaining him, that he's, he's receiving. Five, objectivity. That I am that I am means that God is outside of our perspectives. This is a big deal for the way that we think about morality. You and I can argue about something and you say, well, that's your perspective. And I have to go, poof, well, oh, yeah. Because <laughs> I'm just a person like you're a person. But God's able to say, well, no, it's the perspective. You this is just your opinion, man. He goes, no, it's the opinion because I'm the man, <laughs> you know, he wouldn't say it that way because he's God, but, but that's the argument, and it matters for, for a thousand things, but it definitely matters for how we say what is right and what is wrong. Six, we must conform to God, not him to us. That's, this immovability, this inchangeability, this perfection means that it's on us to, to change, not him. And then lastly, number seven, it means that God has drawn near to us in Jesus Christ. You go, huh? Jesus is in this passage? We're in the Jew times. We're in like way long ago, way before Jesus with Moses. Well, yeah. But I am that I am connects very tightly with what Jesus said about himself. The Gospel of John does it most explicitly, but in the Gospel of John, Jesus repeatedly talks about himself as I am. In doing that, he describes himself as God. Here's an example from John 8. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. This is Jesus arguing with some Pharisees. And the Pharisees say back to Jesus, you're not even 50. And you've claimed to have seen Abraham thousands of years ago? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. And everybody knew that he was claiming to be Yahweh. What? By claiming to be God there, Jesus is saying not only that he's God, he's also saying that the kind of God that Yahweh is, is a kind of God that comes to us. A kind of God that meets us with the compassion of Jesus. A kind of God that finds Moses out in the middle of Midian and says, I'm going to use you, bud. Let's go. A kind of God that sees you as you really are with all of your brokenness and all of your sin and says, I'm going to die for you. We talk about our humility before God. Do you see God's humility to serve you? That he would become a person and that finding himself in the form of a man, he would submit himself to death, even death on a cross. That he would consider loving you even in your rejection of him. That Surprise by Joy book, C.S. Lewis, talks about how he didn't want to be a Christian. He got boxed into it. It was only later that he realized how kind God must be to accept somebody like him. He says, In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England, (laughs) I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility, which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son, which is a story from Jesus' teaching that we talked a lot about at Hope Church, is a person who is rejecting uh, God or rejecting his father to go and choose sin, and then comes back dirty and filthy to, to see if he can receive some kind of grace from the Father. And as he's on his way back, the Father runs and grabs him because that's the kind of love that God has. And, and Lewis says about himself, the prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can truly really adore that love? Who can show the right kind of gratitude for that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in, kicking and struggling, resentful and darting his eyes in every direction for any last chance of escape. You don't have to be real nice. In fact, you're not. You don't have to love him very well. In fact, you won't. But if you will come to this God who loves you with this kind of love, he can change you. He can bring you to himself. He can make you somebody like Moses. You probably won't live to 120, but he can make you like Moses in that you can see God. You can know him, the one that is. Now, I don't know how you're going to necessarily receive this. There's a lot of content there. But my prayer is that you'll hear what God says about himself and in some way be attracted. And if you're attracted, that you'll start to pursue Him, that you'll start to look in His Word, that maybe your next step will just be to show up again next week as we continue to talk about this God and how He interacted with Moses next week and then other people in weeks to follow. We don't do community groups over the summer, but maybe it's just to say hello to somebody else and try to find another person that you can connect with that this might be not just a place you come on Sunday, but maybe even part of your community. And if you're a believer, let me ask you to consider what what would help you to become more humble it's not just contemplation of the divine it's to serve serve within your family serve within your community but but also serve at hope church i am very thankful for god's humbling of me as i get to serve here you know it's not easy to set up and tear down and run kids ministry and do all the little things we get to do and run camp you know camp's great for the kids, <laughs> for the leaders, it's a bit of a matzo ball to work through, you know? But okay, cool. I'm not in control. I don't get credit. God does. And in that process, the Lord allows those that have served in all these ways to get to a little bit more start to see him. If that's you, let us know. There's white cards or every other chair. There's elongated white cards. You can write down who you are. And let us know how we can connect you to what's going on, the life of Hope Church. I pray that you will. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we ask you for your grace and your kindness this morning to introduce us to yourself. Lord, to have that level of humility that you would be willing to come to know us, even when we are just really not that lovely. But your mercy and your kindness is such that you meet those who are far from you and bring them near. You meet those who have soiled themselves with sin and through washing in your blood, you make us white as snow. (laughs) Lord, let us hear that and let us receive it in a way that our hearts bounce with joy. And in that satisfaction of who you are, Lord, let your name be glorified. We pray all these things in your son's holy name. Amen.